Public Stew viewers, I'm really happy to uh, bring you today an author who's been with us more than any other author. I think one of the reasons is because he writes so much, which is great, um, but probably only my mother would have seen all 65 episodes of Book Stew to recognize Lamar. So if you've never met him before, I'd like to introduce you to Lamar Giles, who is a YA and scientific uh, sci-fi author and also compiles uh, books of short stories and then appears in books of short stories and that's how busy he's been. So Lamar, welcome back to Book Stew. You know whenever you write anything I'm going to be nagging you and Skyping you and having you back on the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Eileen. It's always a pleasure. So um, why don't we start with um, this, this is a book of short stories and it's called Three Sides of a Heart. It's an interesting concept because it deals with romantic triangles. And I don't know if anyone's ever put together um, a group of stories that deals with that one very thorny issue. And you chose to handle it in a really unique way. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, yeah, well, Three Sides of a Heart, that's Natalie C. Parker's anthology. And as you said, it's about love triangles. Um, I actually came to this anthology late. They'd already had their roster, but someone wasn't able to stay in the anthology for a reason I wasn't privy to. Um, but they asked me late. They were like, hey, we know it's kind of crunch time, um, but if it, would you be interested? And so I just asked Natalie, what was she missing? Because I didn't want to do something that anybody else was doing. And she's like, you know, we're really light on dark fantasy stuff. Uh -huh. I was like, no problem. No problem. I was like, because I, I love, I grew up reading Stephen King, all sorts of um, horror, dark fantasy authors, F. Paul Wilson, um, Christopher Golden. And so when she said that's what she needed, uh, I immediately got this idea of, of mashing up like the love triangle theme with something sort of Buffy the Vampire Slayerish, And that ended up being my story, the historian, the garrison, and the cantankerous Catwoman. I always mix those up, so I think I got it right this time. I think you did. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a kind of a freaky story. You read it. You know, um, I had a lot of fun writing it, a lot of twists and turns, uh, monsters, so magic. When you wrote it, now, so you wrote it really under the gun and under a deadline. How long did it take for you to write it? Um, probably took like maybe a solid week for a first draft. And then, um, so like maybe 10 days. Because the first draft in a week, then I would rewrite it, clean it up the best I could, and then gave it to Natalie and the other editors at HarperCollins, and they had their notes. So I think that thing probably took maybe two and a half weeks total. And had any, so are you a pantser or a plotter? Like, had you had, did you fly by the seat of your pants on this one because you had a really short time frame? Or do you, did you outline it? Like, how did, how did it come together in such a short period of time? Yeah, I was a pantser on that one. I, I <laughs> tend to be able to do both. So I tend to plot out novels a little more, but with short stories, I just sort of let them go and see what happens. Because I think this would be um, an amazing Netflix short film, you know, or, <laughs> or even a series, because I think um, because of uh, the, the various shapeshifters and strange monsters, that the, the teenagers meet, um, you could just go on and on and just keep putting more monsters in there, you know what I mean? 
Well, if, if you know somebody that can make that happen, let me know. I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to see it too. Well, wait a minute though. I I know that you have sold something to somebody at this point, right? So let's hear about that. Oh yeah, Fake ID, which was my first young adult novel, was optioned by Sony Pictures and the producer Seth Gordon. He's done shows like The Goldbergs, um, Amazon Sneaky Pete. Um, he did this documentary that I really enjoyed called The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, which is about competitive Donkey Kong players. Um, so <laughs> Seth's got like a really varied resume and he saw something in the book and so he optioned it and is currently doing what he does to try to see if we can get it turned into a TV show. So how optimistic or pessimistic are you? Um, I'm slightly north of neutral, so I'm slightly <laughs> optimistic. Um, it's one of those things where I don't have any control at this point. I know Seth's doing his job and he's had an incredible track record in Hollywood. So I feel confident that no matter what, he's going to do what he can to make it happen. And then it's just sort of left to the powers that be. So would it, uh, is he envisioning it as a, a film or as like a TV show? All our conversations have been around TV shows. Um, I think that book would serve like a eight to 10 episode structure well. Um, that's my opinion. I, I, Seth didn't say that to me. I'm sure he has his own ideas. But um, I think we're looking at TV. And as of right now, from what I understand, they're making progress on whatever the back end of that looks like. So fingers crossed. Oh, that's really, really exciting. I, I will keep yeah. fingers crossed. And of course, since I read all your Instas and your Twitters and everything, I'll, I'll yeah. probably be, hopefully be one of the first to know. So why don't yeah. we talk a little bit about Fresh Ink, because in, um, in Three Sides of a Heart, you're uh, in the anthology, but in Fresh Ink, you really put the anthology together. Yeah, and, and I should say, it's really a team effort. My name is on that cover as the editor, but this is the second Weedy Diverse Books anthology. So the idea of us doing these anthologies was a team idea that started with Ellen O's Flying Lessons which was our first anthology targeted towards middle grade readers. So Fresh Ink is the second, which is targeted toward the young adult audience. And there will be a third next year and a fourth after that um, with different editors. So yes, I, I helped put Fresh Ink together and I did a lot of work here, but it's really sort of like a group concept that came from the nonprofit We Need Diverse Books. So I'm gonna ask you to read your introduction that you wrote, but before I do, tell us a little bit about how uh, we, need, we Need Diverse Books is doing, because it seems to me it's been a, such a successful effort. Yeah, um, almost five years old. Um, and that's, that's a big deal, considering that we started as a hashtag on Twitter. Um, and in the last few years, we've really come up with some programs that I think are innovative and help change the face of publishing in little ways. Um, we have our WNDB in the Classroom Initiative, which actually puts books in the hands of needy children. We have our internship program where we help subsidize the living expenses of interns going to work for publishers and agents in New York. Um, we have our mentorship program where we actually pair up and coming creators with seasoned professionals so they can better prepare those up and comers for the industry. Uh, so we, we have a lot of things going on. The Walter Dean Myers Award is another thing we do where we recognize really spectacular, diverse work. Um, and so five years later, we're still going strong. And go, it sounds to me like actually going stronger. I mean, you, it sounds like you've just been 
getting more and more, uh, more and more activity going through the organization. And um, I'm so proud that we started talking at the beginning of it and that you have continued success. So yes. um, without further ado, how about reading your introduction for us, please? Sure. No problem. Um, and forgive me if I'm looking away from the camera. I have to look down, obviously. Uh, this is the foreword from Fresh Ink, and it starts like this. When I was a teenager, I hated reading. Well, not hate hate, love hate. Me and reading, we had our issues. I was still the guy who'd ask my mom for a new book every time we stepped into a store. Still the guy who, at age 11, read Stephen King's It in a week and decided I wanted to write, despite being sleep deprived from terror and never wanting to see a clown again. Still the guy who escaped into fictional worlds every chance I got because they were better than dealing with my mean peers, my mean stepdad, or the mean real world. In books, mean didn't beat the hero. That was everything to me for a while. What changed? It became pretty freaking clear that book after book, adventure after adventure, the heroes weren't like me at all. And I don't mean short and moderately athletic with severe seasonal allergies because I'm aware those traits might hinder one's ability to save the city, world, or galaxy. I mean black boys. More often than not, if I ran across a character who shared my race and gender in a book, he was a gross stereotype, comic relief, token sidekick, or, depending on genre, I'm looking at you, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. There to die so the real hero could fight another day. This was not an uncommon problem. Any of my friends who didn't fit a certain mold had the same issue. Finding ourselves in the stories we loved was hard, frustrating work. But when we discovered that rare story that reflected us, that hidden gem, we latched on and fell in love, love with reading all over again. For some of us in that renewed state of romantic bliss, we made vows to write the stories we had such a hard time finding. With the book that you hold in your hands, we've unhidden the gems. In these pages are all sorts of heroes. There's one who doesn't speak, but flies around with a jetpack to fight monsters. One who's nervous about bringing her girlfriend to family dinner. One who outswims ignorance as well as his competitors and more. I hope you find one who looks like you or thinks like you or feels like you. If not, I hope you find glimpses into other worlds that are both respectful and enlightening. Whatever your experience among these pages, know this about the 12 stories collected here. They're presented with nothing but love. So who could not be inspired to plunge right in when after they've read that? Um, how did you gather the authors whose stories appear? Well, um, we're very lucky in the sense that when We Diverse Books formed, pretty much everybody who understood the mission volunteered to help in some way. It was one of those things where they're like, just let us know. So we have access to many, many authors, and it really became more about whose schedule allowed them the time to work on this anthology. So we had the first one, those writers, which were all superstars, they were available then. When it came to this one, these are the group that were available now. And so it wasn't so much of having to assemble them as much as cashing in that rain check of, hey, you offered to help, now's the time. And so it just became a matter of, okay, you guys are available now, let's do it. And then there'll be another group 
who was working on the next anthology. So we we didn't have difficulty bringing these people together because they all support the mission. So let me ask you a tough question about these anthologies. What happens if you get a contribution that you feel that you're like shaky about, like, I don't know if this is up to snuff because they're your peers, so it's not like you can say, hey, uh, this was weak. I mean, how do you handle that? Or has that ever happened? Well, the fortunate thing I can say is it didn't happen with my batch. So I'm not 100% sure on what would happen if we had to tell one of these professionals that a story wasn't up to snuff. But I think that's the beauty of them being professionals, because I think if any of them turned a draft in that was subpar, I don't think they'd have a problem rewriting. Because what I find is with these people who are used to doing this, even if the story needs work, they're up for whatever that work is. So with my group, we didn't have that problem, thankfully. (laughs) But I can't imagine it would be an issue when you're dealing with people who do this for a living. So, But as uh, the person who, who put it together, was that, is that, uh, did you edit them as well? Like, was that part of your mission? Um, I did with help from Phoebe Ye, who is an editor at Crown, the Crown imprint of Penguin Random House. So me and Phoebe worked together to provide feedback to the authors, and they would do revisions and turn in another draft or a third draft if necessary. So, yes, I read every story. I contributed my comments along with Phoebe. We went back to the authors, and then we would have conversations Um, There were cases where some changes were more than others, but everyone was really cool about it. That's that's great, because you've seen this from both sides, from being part of an anthology and being kind of the anthologizer or the compiler of the story. So which do you prefer? Um, I think I prefer writing them. Uh, It's fun to be the editor because you get to see how other people's process works, but writing is my first love, so I really enjoy the fun of creating a new story. I mean, I I just turned one in yesterday for an anthology that'll be out either late next year or early 2020, um, inspired by Edgar Allan Poe stories. So I'm I'm constantly working in short fiction and really enjoy that side of it. So then since, so now we'll we'll move over and I'm going to shift books over to Spin, which which is your new novel that's coming out at the end of January. How different is it to write a novel than a short story? And is, if you've been writing a lot of short stories, is it difficult to kind of expand into a novel? Um, so I, someone, I don't know who said this. This is not my wisdom. But I guess the, the apt comparison is a novel's the marathon and the short story is a sprint. And so one just, I'm not going to say it just takes less time because they both can have their difficulties. But for me, I found short fiction to be a break from writing novels because novels can be a slog once you're in the middle of them. I mean, you're talking about if I'm working fast, I can do a first draft of a novel in about three months. But around that month and a half mark, you sort of wish you could work on anything else. Uh, And that's not that's not to say you don't love writing, but it is work. And when I finish novels or when I get to take a break to write short fiction, it's just sort of fun to do something different that doesn't take a long time. So that's sort of how I approach it. Um, there was a second part to your question. I forgot what it was. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay. Um, but I, I did want to read one, one sentence that you wrote in um, Three Sides of a Heart that struck me uh, because I'm now familiar with all your novels. So uh, this is in The Historian, The Garrison, and The Cantankerous Catwoman. And one of the characters says to another female, she's a girl, she says to the other girl, 
I think you want everyone to see this cool, unflinching genius, and you are a genius. And that was the description of one of the characters. So I, going into spin, I think I see a little bit of a pattern of um, when people are, when, when your protagonists are working together, there's one person who's like really strong and really great at something, but they don't usually, they they're not usually together enough to accomplish the mission. So they have to grab a kind of normal person who isn't a genius and their abilities combine to get the result you're looking for. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. And I can tell you, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a confession. That is totally me ripping off the 1980s buddy cop formula movies. Um, <laughs> okay. um, particularly, I would think probably particularly Lethal Weapon 2 or 3, the one that introduced Joe Pesci. Um, I just always <laughs> love this idea of having these partners who need one more person, and they're sort of a pain in the butt. And I've, I've used it I used it a lot. I love those sorts of things, and I think they're fun to play with and because they often give you a lot of options where you can have... Um, one character's personality set one way, another, another, and then you have this triangle where they can all bounce off each other and benefit or clash. So I think it just provides a lot of dramatic options when you use those those kind of archetypes. And so then we've got triangles and then a triangle in spin mm -hmm. as well. I have a question to ask you about spin, and I well, a few, but I think um, this would help our viewers who aren't necessarily familiar with the modern concept of a DJ, because um, spin centers around uh, a DJ who just catches on through all the social media that's now available and then is murdered at the beginning of the book. Um, so a DJ to people my age, I'm afraid, is somebody who just sits there and plays records. But yes. a DJ now is very, very different. So can you tell us a little bit about how that's changed? Well, actually, I think the title is still very much the same. I think if you're claiming to be a, a DJ, which is short for disc jockey, which they don't necessarily use disc anymore, but the idea is you're playing music at venues and parties, I think that title still applies. It just so happens in my book and with some of the artists that work today, you're a DJ and you may also be a producer which is the case with DJ Parsec and Spin. So she does play parties, and she does sit in her booth and, and play her music from her computer and not the traditional vinyl records. But she also produces and makes music, um, which I think is a distinction that a lot of these younger artists have coming up today. So um, what they'll do is they'll take samples of various songs or like snippets of music that are out there for them to grab and they assemble it into a mix that's unique to them? Is that like a decent way to explain it? I, some of them do. Um, I think there are probably still producers who create original compositions. Um, I think it's been in vogue, particularly in hip hop, to sample music from past eras. Um, and we've seen that on many of the hip hop hits of the last four decades, since the beginning of hip hop. Sampling is very popular in that genre of music. So that's part of it. But I would say there are probably some artists who still create totally original compositions. And I'm trying to, I'm thinking particularly of like um, the, the producer Timbaland, who's from Virginia, where I'm from, and his name dropped a couple times in Spin. And um, I'm not sure that he leans on sampling as much as other artists. I could be totally wrong there, but he uses sound in a very unique way that feels very original.
So what, um, what made you choose um, that occupation for your main character, even though she's not kind of the main character, again, there's a triangle with uh, two friends of hers, uh, one of whom is an amazing singer and one of whom is a technologist. So ha what made you uh, think about starring them in and creating spin based around them? Um, it's sort of a convergence of a couple of things. One is that I'm always trying to look for unique skills to give my protagonist in novels. And you may remember, like, from Overturn, Nikki was a poker player. Um, so in this case, the idea of someone who makes music combined with an article I read, I think, on Complex.com about music fandoms. So I don't know if you're familiar, but, like, you know, artists today, they all have these, like, dedicated fandoms. So Drake has his team Drizzy, and Rihanna has Rihanna's Navy. And the Bayhive. Yes, yes, the most famous. And <laughs> in, it was an article that I was reading that said, if you don't like Beyonce's new single, the Beehive will annihilate you. Uh -huh. And it sort, of, it sort of came from that. And so that brings in music, the technology, because that's largely an online fandom that, that, that populates Twitter and Instagram. And those sort of swirled into what you have in Smith. I also noticed a constant throughout your books is um, a little bit of conflict with parents or grandparents. So is that, do you think that's particularly like a YA trope that um, your audience can relate to? Um, but you did mention, it's funny, in the introduction that you read to Fresh Ink, you said a mean stepdad. So I'm wondering how much how much is like what you know your audience faces and what you faced yourself? Um, so yeah, I guess there's two things there. One is the idea that I, I never really bought YA books that didn't deal with the parents. Like if, if unless you're talking about a child that's an orphan and who's maybe living in an, in an orphanage, you have to deal with what are the parents doing while they're out adventuring. And I, I just naturally think a parent would object to the dangerous situations that I put my characters in. So there's always gonna be that natural conflict. And then if you talk about me growing up, me and my stepdad did not get along. And that's unfortunate. And I think it bleeds through into a lot of the work because I have very strong memories of that. Um, he passed away when I was 20. So um, that relationship never really got resolved as I think most parental relationships probably do in the long term. Um, so I think a lot of that still comes through. That's interesting and kind of sad that you never had a chance to work it out. But on the other hand, you don't know that it ever could have been worked out in any Very case. True. So, so Very I guess true. it's it's fodder for your writing, and that's that's always good, I guess. Um, so I have also noticed over the last couple of uh, books and the readings that you focus more on female protagonists. Um, Fake ID, uh, your main character was a boy. Uh, so mm -hmm. how has, uh, what made that that shift, and is it just temporary, or what's your thinking about that? Um, it's actually just a matter of publication order, because for whatever reason, those books have been published before the other books I'm writing or have been, have written that feature male protagonists, because had I had my way, um, we would have gotten a fake ID sequel this year. I've written most of that, but some publishing shuffling has gotten in the way. 
but like I have a middle grade coming out in April where the protagonists are two male cousins. And then I have a coming of age story coming out in 2020 where the protagonist is male. So it's just become more of a situation of these are the books that made it to print first. But by the time it's said and done, it'll probably be more like half and half. So it wasn't just a, a conscious decision to only write girls. It just happens that's the way publishing worked out for whatever reason. So um, I'm very excited to hear about um, a sequel to, to Fake ID. I, I think yes. I, have to, I have to admit it's really still my favorite out of all your books. Thank um, you. So how, how, did, how long have you been dreaming of a sequel? I wanted to do the sequel immediately after. Um, my, my, my dream would have been in 2014, you have Fake ID, 2015, the sequel, and then maybe 2016, a third book to possibly close it out or continue whatever that series ended up being. But publishing is a strange entity. And the editor that acquired Fake ID left that publisher six months before Fake ID was, was published. And it became this whole thing of, we don't really know what to do with you now because this was 2014 and we're still very much in the midst of you're the, our black guy writer and we don't know if there's even really an audience. Oh, well, so, it's a, and that was only that was only four years ago. But yeah, yeah. So that well, that makes me think, you know, it's not like everything changes overnight, but there certainly has been an improvement in the diversity of what's available for not only um, not only YA but for, for adults, and I think your group has to take a lot of the credit for that. And you know, people like Marley Diaz who spoke up. And um, what what do you think about the pace of change? It's never fast enough, but it's there's certainly been an improvement. Yeah, I think you can compare to even if you take something like the bestseller list for children's fiction, whether that's young adult, middle grade and compare it to what you would have seen five years ago, you can pinpoint, like, big changes, much more diversity. But there's still a lot of work to do. Like, we can't rest on our laurels. Um, I say the big change will be when you can have diverse work that's mediocre and everybody's okay with it. Because right now, the diverse work has to be exceptional. And any little dip in sales or reception and people are ready to claim, see, this didn't work. Um, which, while books by white authors, well, straight authors, um, never have to live up to that standard. There's always been room for the mediocre. That's, um, you know, I've heard that said also about women in at work. Like, mm -hmm. not only uh, black women or women of color, but white women. You have to be twice as good, three times as good mm -hmm. as a white man because everybody's kind of watching you and waiting for you to screw up. So yep. um, then obviously the more people of color and women who are, you know, who are active and who are in all these worlds, it, it's not going to be such a challenge to, uh, to always have to be perfect and to, mm -hmm. and to watch your step all the time. It would be nice to be able, like you say, we don't want a whole bunch of mediocre people but there has to be room to try and fail, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, and to your point, when you asked me about the books being um, centered on female protagonists, right after Fake ID, like, the message I got from the people in power was, hey, give us a girl book. Um, we don't know if people are going to be receptive to this, this thriller with your black boy in it. So 
Um, let's see what else you got. Right. And so that's what it, yeah, that's what it started us down that path. So I've been writing male protagonists. It's just that, like I said, publishing's been more open to these stories at the moment. But that's about to shift for me. Now, what about um, this? I'm gonna have to wrap up, sadly enough. But what about yeah. sci-fi? Because I sci-fi is not my favorite category. But mm -hmm. I fell in love with N.K. Jemisin's. Uh, Broken yes. Earth trilogy. Oh my! Yes. I, I could not like. Fantastic. As each Fantastic. book was coming out, I was like, "Oh no! When's the next one? When's the next one?" And she won what three Hugo Hugo's in a row, which has never yep. happened before. So, um, do you find her like? What about sci-fi? Like, I sense in all these books that you're kind of dying to focus on just sci-fi, maybe for one book. Um, I'll say this, probably more so darker fantasy, like in the story you read in Three Sides of a Heart. That's sort of what I grew up reading, so I'm probably more there than sci-fi. But if you're asking me about N.K. Jemisin, I think she's fantastic. I met her at the Brooklyn Book Festival a few weeks back, and I mean, I don't really get starstruck. I've been around everybody at this point, but I love her work. I really became a fan with her Inheritance trilogy, where the first book is called The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. I... I wouldn't even attempt to do the sort of stuff she does. I'm not there. Uh, she is a genius. I just bought her short story collection. Um, I read her for fun. I'll stay in my lane for right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. I'm, I would I would have fangirled all over her and like fallen at her feet. My daughter is um, is a geologist, and so I really read the books with great interest that way too. But um, Lamora, thanks so much for coming back on, and I wish you success with everything. I'll be keeping an eye on um, Lamora Goes to Hollywood, hopefully. And um, I got to say, we'll see you uh, in 2020 for sure. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. And Books Do viewers, I really urge you to pick up as many of Lamora's books, and the, amount, the pile is mounting up as you can. Um, share them with your children, your grandchildren, and you'll just enjoy them yourself. So uh, thanks for joining us, and have a good night.